0: Pope Francis visits Mongolia and reveals new details of the upcoming Synod of Bishops and the Vatican-China agreement. Meanwhile, a close papal advisor says Christ needed conversion. Editor of Catholic World News, Philip Lawler, reacts to these stories and more. And a new book claims that feminism and its origins have contributed to the decay of modern culture. Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, Carrie Gress, discusses her new book, The End of Woman, The World Over, begins right now. Now, Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. If you'd like to comment on tonight's show, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo at X. I guess now no longer tweets. They're all X's. Uh, all my X's live around the world. With the synod of bishops only a month away. Pope Francis made an apostolic visit to Mongolia last week. Now, Mongolia has a very tiny Catholic population, but its location in East Asia between Russia and China make it geopolitically significant. Pope Francis did manage to make headlines, even if he visited a very small Catholic population. Here with analysis is the editor of Catholic World News, visiting fellow at New Hampshire's Thomas More College, Philip Lawler. Philip, thanks for being here. I want to start with Pope Francis' comments about his wishes for the Chinese people. Now, this was interesting. On Sunday at Mass, flanked by the Bishop Emeritus of Hong Kong, as well as the current bishop, he said this, these brother bishops... To Chinese people, be good Christians and good citizens. Now, Phil, can one be a good Christian and a good citizen in China, given the reality on the ground there today? And what do you make of this uh, exhortation by the Pope?
1: Well, at best, it's awfully difficult to be a good citizen of a Chinese communist regime and a good Catholic at the same time. But you have to see this comment in context of the fact that the Chinese government is involved in what they call the Sinicization of the Catholic Church, that is making the Church uh, loyal to the Chinese regime at the expense of loyalty to the Universal Church. And so that redoubles the difficulty of being a good citizen and a good Catholic. You also have to bear in mind that this same Chinese regime that they're being asked to, to obey And that's what it is. It's obedience to the regime. This same regime refused to give permission for any of the bishops from mainland China to go to Mongolia to meet with the pope. And that tells you something about the attitude of that regime and the corresponding, well, frankly, the weakness of the reaction from the Roman pontiff to what's at, at, at best a disrespectful attitude towards the Vatican.
0: Yeah, well, and, and, a, and a murderous attitude toward the faithful in China. Uh, but on Monday, on the papal plane back to Rome from Mongolia, Pope Francis addressed this China situation again. He insisted that relations between the Vatican and China are going very well. He said this, quote, relations with China are very respectful. Personally, I have great admiration for the Chinese people. They are very open people. There is a commission to nominate bishops that works in collaboration between the Chinese government and the Vatican. A dialogue has been open for a long time. I think we have to move forward in the religious aspect to understand each other more so that Chinese citizens do not think the church does not accept their culture and their values and that the church represents another foreign power. This friendly road is well-traveled by the commission, chaired by Cardinal Pietro Parolin. They are doing a good job, even the Chinese side, a good job, end quote. Phil, can you decode that? And what of the news that the Vatican and China have this apparently long-standing commission to appoint bishops?
1: Well, let me pick out a couple of phrases from that statement by Pope Francis. One is when he said, the relations have been very respectful or are very respectful. Well, they're very respectful in one direction. The Vatican has been very respectful of Beijing. It is not mutual. And then I want to (laughs) just sort of put a pin in another thing where he said, we have to move forward, Mm -hmm. because I think we're going to be talking about moving forward later in this broadcast, in this conversation in another context. Mm. But when he talks about the commission, there is a secret agreement between Beijing and Rome regarding the appointment of bishops. We don't know what that agreement stipulates. Apparently, there's a commission to appoint bishops. Here's the problem. They haven't been appointing bishops. It's very, very slow going. The most recent Mm. appointment of a new diocesan bishop in China was the Bishop of Beijing, who was transferred from another diocese without any approval of apparently without any notice to the Vatican that it was going to happen. So that is hardly respectful. The same Cardinal Cardinal Parolin said it looks as if the Chinese government, the Chinese regime is simply ignoring the terms of the agreement. This is not respectful and it's not helpful and it's not productive.
0: Phil, what's amazing to me is the deference and the kindness and the gratuitous signs of respect, even the blessing of essentially Xi and his, and his commandants being adjunct members of the Congregation for Bishops in Rome. That's what this amounts to. The Pope is giving his blessing to this adjunct Chinese uh, a commission on bishops apart from the Vatican. And what do you make of the Pope's suggestion here, that the Chinese people are concerned about the church representing another foreign power, and somehow the Chinese people are the ones that need to be placated and calmed down?
1: Yeah, well, of course, that is, frankly, that is the Chinese government's propaganda line. And it's been the propaganda line through the ages of practically every regime that's at odds with the church, that the church is a foreign power and that Catholics in whatever country it is, in this case China, should be suspicious of the church, of the universal church. That's not an attitude of loyal Catholics, that's an attitude of communists, and it's frankly frightening to see it coming out of the mouth of the successor to St. Peter.
0: Hmm. I want to move on to comments the Pope made about the upcoming Synod of Bishops on Synodality. Uh, Pope Francis was asked about a new book by Cardinal Raymond Burke called The Synodal Process. Now, in it, Burke refers to that synodal process as a Pandora's box that could cause calamity and confusion. Pope Francis reacted this way, quote, But if you go to the root of these ideas, you will find ideologies always when one wants to detach from the path of communion of the church, What always pulls it apart is ideology and they accuse the church of this or that, but they never make an accusation of what is true. It is made up of sinners. They never speak of sin. They defend a doctrine, a doctrine like distilled water that has no taste and is not true Catholic doctrine. That is in the creed. And that very often scandalizes. Phil, uh, we could spend a half hour just unpacking this, but, um, I mean, the idea that a doctrine, you know, is somehow, if it's not in the creed, then it's not Catholic doctrine. I don't know where that comes from or, or who devised that, but uh, I'll move past that for a moment. What of this concern for ideologies? Isn't ideology driving this entire synod? sex and gender and women's rights? And I mean, isn't that a part of this?
1: That, that's a huge part of it. In fact, I'm thinking if 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 I could Be known for one law, but the lawler's law would be when the other side starts accusing you of something, take a careful look because it's probably, that's probably exactly what they're doing. This is an ideological synod. It's dominated by feminism, by gender ideology creeping into the Catholic Church. It is not a synod on synodality. It is not about the question, the very important question of how the Catholic Church should make decisions about the relationship between the College of Bishops and the Petrine Ministry. It has devolved into a discussion of all the latest liberal uh, hot-button issues, such as blessing for same-sex marriage and ordination of women and climate change and so forth. It is it is an ideological gathering, and the notion that Cardinal Burke, for instance, is motivated by ideology is as absurd as the idea that he never talks about sin.
0: No, and I, you know, while you mentioned Cardinal Burke, I'm going to mention this Washington Post article that showed up the other day. It reads the headline, Pope Francis chides his U.S. critics, but whom does he have in mind? And uh, the writer, Jack Jenkins, I love this little disclaimer in the middle of the piece. Phil, he says, before we move on, a few personalities on the Catholic scene whom Francis may or may not have in mind. So, and and I'm listed. uh, Tim Bush is listed. Bishop Strickland, amazingly, Cardinal Burke didn't make the list, and neither did you. But. It's clear what I, from what I'm seeing in the press, they are, they are making this public enemies list of anybody who dares question what's about to happen at the Senate. You're some, somehow a bad person and we need to call you out, public enemy number one. This is silly stuff. I mean, if they think nobody's reading the Washington Post, first of all, more people are hearing this than read the Post. But uh, it is interesting that you see these columns coming out, basically ad hominems and dumb attacks on people. Uh, of real of real substance in some cases theologians and holy men and women across the spectrum
1: right and obviously these are the they may or may not be the people that pope is thinking about they're the people jack jenkins is thinking about for sure and it's open yeah. season now for a <laughs> lot of liberal commentators to do things like that to say well you're beyond the pale we can't talk to you you you're one of these radical ideological Catholics and you notice, by the way, in all of this discussion, there's no dis- there's no debate on the substance of the issues. Cardinal Burke right. is suggesting that there is a problem that we could have a runaway synod. Well, the way you answer that concern, if you're really sincere about it, is you say, no, we're not going to run have a runaway synod. We're going to control it to the issues on the agenda and look what's on the agenda. And then, of course, you have a problem because these issues are on the agenda.
0: Right. Well, this is the whole problem. You're right. No one will talk about the substance and its ad hominem silly attacks based on he interviewed that person and he knew that person. And I mean, this is crazy. It's slanderous and it's attacking people's reputations without engaging the argument because you can't. Phil, also on the papal plane, Francis was asked about the synodal discussions and whether they would be held in open. Pope Francis said this, here's the quote, on the process of the assembly, there is one thing that we must safeguard, the synodal atmosphere. This is not a television show where you talk about everything. No, there is a religious moment. There is a moment of religious exchange. Without this spirit of prayer, there is no synodality. It becomes politics and parliamentarianism. The Synod is not a parliament. Regarding the privacy of discussions, there is a department headed by Dr. Ruffini, that's the media uh, office at the Vatican, who is here and who will issue press releases about this regarding the Synod progress. In a Synod, it is necessary to safeguard religiosity and safeguard the freedom of those who speak. Now, Phil, what do you make of a, a moment, an event, billed as listening to the voices of the whole church, now held in private, with an invite-only group of people who are of like mind?
1: Well, it's contradictory, uh, uh, but then it's not the first contradiction. This has been from the get-go, a synod that is advertised as being open to everybody, but in practice, the people who are invited, the people who are sort of uh, let through the various filters, the people who who are involved in writing up the preparatory documents, that's all fairly tightly controlled. And this synod, Mm -hmm. frankly, like every synod before it, will be more tightly controlled. The restrictions on press access or public access, to me, are most significant because the last few synods have seen outbursts. The one most dramatic, I wish I'd been there, was Cardinal Pell, the late Cardinal Pell, slamming down something Mm -hmm. on his desk and saying, you must stop manipulating this synod. Uh, That doesn't make good TV for the people who are trying to control the process.
0: Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, I was about to ask you, why can't the church hear and watch these discussions if this synod is so important, so seminal? And look, if we're worried about protecting religious moments and moments of prayer, if that's what this is, then we should stop broadcasting papal events and all those papal meetings. Those are allegedly religious moments, too, right?
1: Of course. And what I don't understand this. Are you afraid if you want a prayerful atmosphere? Are you afraid of the public seeing people in a prayerful atmosphere? I d I don't understand mm-hmm. that concern at all.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. They're afraid of seeing any any break in the narrative that's being being advanced here. And Phil, the relator general of the synod, Belgium Cardinal uh Jean-Claude Holrich, he defended this week what he calls a protected space of non-public deliberations, end quote, for the Senate on synodality. He said this protected space would be necessary for free debate. Why keep these discussions hidden? If they're matters of such importance, and particularly when they will greatly affect the faithful, shouldn't people be able to hear what the church is deciding for them?
1: Yes, and if you want the Holy Spirit to move freely, don't you want as many opportunities as possible for someone to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's a protected Mm -hmm. space to me is, is sort of the opposite of an openness to the Holy Spirit.
0: Phil, I want to get your take on a recent meeting the Pope had early in August with Jesuits during a visit to Portugal. This was just released this past week. A Portuguese Jesuit who had spent some time in the United States asked the Pope, about the criticism coming from conservative and traditional Catholics and Catholic groups in the United States. Pope Francis did not mince words. He said, those American groups of which you speak, so closed, are isolating themselves. And instead of living by doctrine, by the true doctrine that always develops and bears fruit, they live by ideologies. But when you abandon doctrine in life to replace it with an ideology, you have lost. You have lost as in war. Phil, uh, the Pope also laments the focus on sins of the flesh, or what he called sins below the waist, over social justice concerns. Your reaction to these broadsides against traditional Catholics?
1: You notice, again, there isn't much substance. Uh, It's, I'm sorry to say, name-calling. You notice also that, once again, the Pope is talking about ideology, when, in fact, what people like us are worried about is the ideological increasing ideological control over the agenda of the vatican and when he talks about pelvic issues dominating our consciousness look at the issues that are coming up in discussions again and again and again on this synod of bishops yeah. starting with homosexuality same-sex unions feminism etc abortion uh, yeah. it's contraception it's uh, It's the pelvic issues. Uh, Don't, you know, if we're talking a lot about those issues, it's because somebody else opened the conversation.
0: Right. That was previously closed. And, you know, it's very interesting when you look at the panoply of these issues. It seems to me traditional Catholics are concerned about the vertical. They're concerned about the Eucharist, the sacraments, reaching God. The the progressives are more focused on the horizontal, all the stuff that's earthbound and pelvic, as you mentioned. And on the papal plane, Pope Francis summed up his critique this way. I want your reaction. He said about Americans, yes, they got mad, but move on, move on. Phil, I guess those American faithful just need to get over it and follow the German church in quiet, or maybe they should uh, enslave uh, you know, whole populations as the Chinese do, and maybe they'll be treated with a little more respect.
1: Or, or Genghis Khan, who the Pope had some praise for him while he was in Mongolia. Mm. Uh, but I don't think I'll be a successor to Genghis Khan in that respect. But notice again here, He's saying, move on. As I I earlier highlighted his saying, move forward, is don't look back. Don't look at what I've said that might have upset or angered or outraged or offended these loyal American Catholics. This is one of those instances where, you know, there's a big difference between saying, I'm sorry that I offended you and saying, I'm sorry you were offended. In the one case, you're admitting that you did something that caused offense. In this case, he is not. He's not uh, reaching out to us. He's not reaching out to those of us on the peripheries, and showing his mm. his concern and care for us. He's saying, "Get over it."
0: Yeah. Uh, speaking of moving on, uh, Father Antonio Spadaro, a very close confidant, indeed the ghostwriter for Pope Francis for many of his encyclicals, made some rather interesting comments regarding. Christ and the woman at the well from the Gospel of Matthew. Spadaro, uh, in what appears to be a homily in an Italian periodical, describes Jesus as, quote, indifferent and then stymied and callous regarding the woman's plight. He goes on to say Jesus's conversation with the Canaanite woman was marred by the, quote, cultural rigidity of the time. Spadaro finally argues that the woman upset Jesus's rigidity in order to convert him to himself. I'm going to read the quote. And Jesus also appears healed and in the end shows himself free from the rigidity of the dominant theological, political and cultural elements of his time. So, Phil, I guess this is a real novel one. Even Jesus himself was rigid and in need of conversion. Uh, I, I mean, this is blasphemy. I
1: don't know what else to call it. I don't either. And we're living in an upside down world when uh, uh, someone who's so closely in touch uh, with the man on Peter's throne is giving the world this sort of, uh, well, blasphemous understanding where it's not that Jesus converts people, it's that people convert Jesus. I mean, that it's mind boggling. And in a better day, yeah, no, no, it, it, in happier days, it would it would bring immediate consequences, negative consequences for Father yeah. Spadaro. Well,
0: you know, but but it's chilling. I mean, I I never look at what people say, Phil. I always, uh, you know, look at the background, look at the context, then you figure out what they're really saying. It reveals a certain hatred indeed a disdain, a looking down upon Jesus Christ himself, who you claim to have committed your life to. I mean, look, if, if I work for you, if I come work for Lawler Enterprises and then I go out and I say, you know, that Phil Lawler, he's one rigid guy. I mean, he really needs, <laughs> he, he, what he really needs is a conversion. That's not respectful, loving, kind, or someone you want to model yourself after. This is, I, I, I'm just amazed at this statement. But I guess, um, you know, non-rigidity is the, uh, the chic of the day. So we all should jump in. Phil, it was also announced recently that Pope Francis will release part two of his environmental encyclical, Laudato Si, on October 4th. I know you're awaiting that drop any moment. I know you've been sitting at the computer waiting. The feast day of St. Francis. Laudato Si was first released in 2015. Its focus was care for our common home, the environment. Why do you think we need a sequel to the original? And is this uh, an indication of where the Pope would like to take the synod?
1: Well, to the latter question, yes, the Pope obviously wants climate change is very much near the top of his agenda. And if, if I know you read the uh, material coming out of the Vatican every day, as I do, and so much of it is about climate change. Uh, to the first question, yeah. you want to know why we need another encyclical to follow up on the first one, which is already one of the longest encyclicals ever written. I can't answer that question. I don't, mm. I don't feel okay, that well, need. Maybe you do.
0: <laughs> I'll have you back to summarize it. Give us the cliff notes for the audience in October. Phil, uh, in late August, Pope Francis chose uh, a pro-abortion, pro-LGBT Argentinian judge to head a new Vatican Institute for Social Doctrine. Former Supreme Court Justice Raul Eugenio Zafar, he was chosen to lead the newly created body that will deal with social justice and colonialism. Now, this gentleman has been accused of renting out apartment property he owned to a brothel. He exempted a pedophile from prison time. The list goes on. I don't want to get too graphic here, but what does this appointment tell us? Again, this man was hand-selected by the Pope.
1: It tells us about the Pope's priorities, and it tells us that these issues that should be disqualifying for anyone just don't figure very uh, prominently in the pope's priorities and his, in what he, uh, what considerations he weighs when he chooses someone for an important position like this. Why does he choose this man? It has to be because he's ideologically compatible on other issues. I bet you would find that he's okay with the pope on climate change, for instance. For instance, uh-huh. it's it, 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 it's a blindness. And it's a blindness that we've seen before, and we've seen it carried out in the Pope's complete change of the Pontifical Academy for Life, which is now very much concerned with, guess what, climate change. So it's an ideology. Wow.
0: Before we go, I want to get your uh, reaction to a story we've been following, the residential schools controversy in Canada. For two years, we've been reading really, horrendous, salacious stories about hundreds of First Nations children allegedly buried en masse in unmarked graves by individuals who ran these Catholic institutions. There have been apologies issued, et cetera. Excavations at the sites of these institutes have been ongoing, Phil, and to date, they've recovered zero human remains. Phil, the question is, how did these accusations come to be, and why have they persisted for so many years without any evidence? Who's been pushing this narrative?
1: It's an anti-Catholic narrative, and it's open season on the Catholic Church in Canada and in many other places, but it's pretty advanced in Canada. And you've had a political movement... Uh, The thrust of which is to blame the Catholic Church for all the ills of the residential schools. And the residential schools definitely had problems. I'm sort of appalled by the history of them myself. But let's keep keep in mind how they were established. They were established by the Canadian government which handed them over Mm -hmm. to religious congregations to run them and then didn't give them enough money to work with. So yes, there was inadequate food, inadequate housing, inadequate everything, maybe inadequate burials. There may have been mass graves. I don't know. But to pin all of the blame on the Catholic Church and then to insinuate that Catholic religious were were murdering children and burying them in unmarked graves is libelous. And it's Very frustrating to me that we've had no pushback from the Catholic leadership in Canada, but merely apologies. Yeah,
0: Yeah, and it should be noted that First Nations officials have never said there were mass graves at those sites, which is, you know, it it does beg the question, where did this story come from and who's interested in in pushing it?
1: A, A good question. No friends of mine, no friends of the church, and apparently no friends of truth.
0: Yeah, Phil Lawler, we will leave it there. Thank you so much as always. Catholic World News editor, Phil Lawler's reporting and commentary can be found at catholicculture.org. Thank you, Phil. Thank you. And we are less than a month away from the release of my new turnabout tale, an historic picture book I cannot wait to share with you. It's called The Magnificent Mischief of Tad Lincoln. It tells the little known story of President Lincoln's youngest son, who was not only a source of comfort and joy to his father at his darkest moments, but together they established a national holiday tradition we continue to this day. What I love about it is it's a story of mercy and forgiveness and the power of a child in a parent's life. And boy, do we need that today. It also shows how a child can affect a nation. It's the perfect holiday book and family read. It's available now to pre-order at the EWTN catalog, EWTNRC.com, Amazon, Bardens and Noble, wherever you buy your books. It goes on sale October 3rd. The Magnificent Mischief of Tad Lincoln. I know you and your family are going to love it. And it's the latest in my Turnabout Tales series, which talks about challenges faced, decisions made, and history turning in these young lives. My next guest is a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. She is also the editor of the online women's magazine Theology of Home. She's turned her attention toward feminism and the anti-patriarchy movement that is currently so prevalent in the culture. Where did feminism come from and how has it developed into what we're seeing today? She's the author of the new book The End of Woman, How Smashing the Patriarchy Destroyed Us. Please welcome again to the program, Carrie Grass. Good to have you, Carrie. Thanks so much. Uh, I'm gonna get to the book in a moment. Great Mm -hmm. to see you. But first I want to talk about this cultural phenomenon happening right now, Mm -hmm. the Barbie movie. I mean, it's made over (laughs) one point thirty eight billion dollars at the box office. Mm -hmm. It's become a girls' night out favorite with women old and young. It is the highest grossing film in Warner Brothers history. Tell me, Carrie, your reaction to the movie. Why did you take time to write about it, and what is the impact on the culture at large?
2: Yeah, no, I think it's a great question. I uh, begrudgingly went and saw the film with my two teenage daughters, and um, you know, I found it incredibly painful. Partially because I've just written this whole book about smashing the patriarchy and what this has really done to the culture, and you know, I wasn't disappointed in the sense that it it, it was just an amazing piece of propaganda to promote the, the um, smashing the patriarchy. And you know, if you look at the men in the film, not a single one of them is is needed or necessary. They're all. Um, incredibly you know, just useless characters, but also they make the point that the patriarchy is something that really creates havoc in a culture and disorder and chaos, um, and it's really the matriarchy mm. that brings order to things. So I think it's, it's incredible because that, that's the strong message, but it's really wrapped in a lot of pink. Mm. It's wrapped in a lot of nostalgia for those of us who played with Barbies when we were little. And it yeah. has some very tender moments in it, I think, as well, uh, that really hit the hearts of women. So I, I think we're just so used to the, the propaganda machine that we don't really even realize how it's kind of getting around our defenses and, and leading mm-hmm. us to think about men in, in the way that they would want us to. So I think it's just a new effort by feminists mm-hmm. who are aging significantly um, to bring on a whole new raft of, mm-hmm. of young women to the ideology.
0: Mm-hmm. In your book, The End of Women, you mm-hmm. write about the fairy tale and how fairy tales have changed over the years, particularly with the advent of modern feminism. Um, Is is Barbie a modern-day feminist fairy tale? What is the moral of that story? Well,
2: think? I think the big push of Barbie, I mean, especially in this movie, is to make women th- think that they don't need men, that they don't need children, that those are unnecessary things. And this is, mm-hmm. you know, the argument that feminists have been making really since the very beginning, uh, because they've been asking the question, how do we make women more like men? Not how do we help women as women. Um, so you can see that. So it's really this this mythology, this belief that somehow women are going to be happier if we are, you know, the independent woman who doesn't have a family, has no connections to family, has no children, Um, and then we can just sort of live Mm -hmm. in this perfect Barbie world, I guess.
0: Hmm. Where do these new fairy tales have their roots? I mean, you identify mm-hmm. sort of the yeah. the founding myth, if you will, uh, mm-hmm. for much of what we're seeing and have seen yeah. over the years.
2: Yeah, I went back to the to first wave feminism, and I was so, struck, you know, so much over and over again by the things that I found there because I was had been told that first wave was was relatively, you know, intellectually pure. Um, but I just, the story certainly starts there. But I think the big issue, and, you know, this the, much of this, the ideology has evolved over the centuries, um, but I think the big piece really was came about when feminism linked arms with communism and men were suddenly made automatically, the oppressors, and women were made the victims. Um, and that's, that changes the script mm. a lot when you have women um, and men, you know, have this, Kind of automatic animosity towards one another. And that's what we've been living through and living with mm. for, you know, yep. at least the last 50 years, but actually goes back much further than that, I think. And that's what I explore in the book.
0: Yeah. And you write in the book about how feminism has flipped the notion of what once were considered virtues mm-hmm. uh, and vices in classic mm-hmm. fairy tales. Uh, give us some examples of that. How, in our, you know, in our every, the stories we tell our girls, the stories we tell our boys, how it's kind of laced with. This um revisionist thought that at mm-hmm. times you say is counter nature,
2: yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the biggest pieces is envy. I think our whole the, the women 's movement has been built upon envy and this um sort of this weird schizophrenia that women have with men, you know we want to be just like you, but we want you to become just like us, but we also hate you, you know it 's this very odd dynamic going on, um so I you know this is something you can 't possibly build a culture on is is resentment this is not. Um, or envy, um, mm. where you are wishing the, the ill upon others. And that, you know, that's what's loaded in the whole notion of smashing the patriarchy is this idea of getting rid of men. I mean, this is not a new idea. It's, it actually mm. has some very deep roots in the 70s and onward. So um, those are the kinds yeah. of things that are being flipped.
0: Uh, Carrie, why did you title the book The End mm. of Woman? Mm-hmm. Is the situation that dire?
2: No, I, well, I don't know if it is or not. It's hard to tell, but, um, I, I think I called it that because of the fact that, what we're really doing is erasing women. What we're doing is getting rid of the the virtues and the the beautiful things about women, um, things like motherhood, whether it's biological, psychological, or spiritual, and uh, supplanting them with these these values that are you know aren't really they, they don't work with human nature. And this is what we're seeing certainly in the trans movement, um, where you know a man puts on a dress and some heels and says he has the right feelings, and suddenly we're all supposed to pretend he's a woman. Um, but that in no way, obviously, is really a, a True reflection of what authentic womanhood is.
0: Mm. You also write about women's happiness and mm-hmm. a dramatic 2009 study mm-hmm. issued by the National Bureau of Economic Research, and it revealed that women are not growing happier yeah. as feminist ideals are are sort of embraced. Mm-hmm. What do those findings tell you yeah. about the movement? Mm -hmm. and the things it promises to women, why aren't Mm -hmm. women happier?
2: Yeah, I mean, this was 2009 and since then we've seen statistics just continually grow worse. Women are having, you know, their, mm. the numbers of depression, of suicide, of substance abuse, all of these kinds of things point to some incredibly unhappy women. And, you know, this is what you wouldn't expect from a movement that's so popular and that so many women adhere to and think is really good for women. Um, but this is what's really being hidden from women is the truth about it, because, of course, the, the feminist movement is pushing against our human nature. It's trying to deny that fundamentally. And so, you know, what are you going to mm. end up with? Some very unhappy women, because, of course, we're, we're not doing the things that we're mm fundamentally meant to do, which is love and care
0: for others. Yeah, Carrie, there is a backlash, though. There is a mm. counterculture, if you will. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I mm-hmm. see a rise of uh, younger people, young, yeah. younger men and women yeah. who are uh, embracing love, marrying young, having mm-hmm. families, attending, I know I'm not supposed to say it, <laughs> traditional <laughs> masses. Mm-hmm. Um, a reaction to what is perceived as an emptiness being offered by this culture and this modern culture and this this kind of feminist thought. Mm -hmm. Is is that is that growing? Do you see that Mm -hmm. sector of the population growing as a reaction to what they've been fed all along?
2: no absolutely I mean I think we're, we're seeing a lot of this people are very fed up with it and trying to figure out you know why are we not happy and and saying what was wrong with all these things that you've told us to get rid of in fact um, you know homemaking itself is such a dirty word and yet all the things about homemaking are now back in style so uh, it's it's incredible to see the, the reaction and I think people are moving in that direction and it's amazing to think that you know the people that are doing something really radical are actually just having a family and going to church um, so I, I think there's a lot of hope and I think actually that's one One of the reasons why the Barbie movie was released when it was released, because other people are noticing this, too, and they're realizing, like, we we can't have all these young people sort of outside of our our narrative and acting in their own independent ways um, that we haven't sanctioned.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. A study by the American Sociological Association finds that 70% of divorces Mm -hmm. are being initiated now by women. How does this relate to the happiness statistics we spoke about a moment ago? And are women increasingly unhappy because they're married? Mm -hmm. Or are these marriages failing because of an overall lack of happiness?
2: Yeah, I think that's a great question, but I know some of it has to do with the fact that women have really bought into this kind of consumeristic approach to relationships. I mean, we're not, often we don't have great role models. We also have sort of the um, whispering tribe of friends who may or may not be married or also who are divorced. Um, who are saying, you know, you're going to have a much better life without this man or if you didn't have these kinds of commitments. Um, so I, I think that's part of the problem of just what the the culture itself is telling women, uh, that the grass is always greener and that, the, you know, there's there's something to be said for going out and looking rather than um, just persevering mm. through the way that people have in the past and really found um, kind of deep satisfaction with, the, you know, people that have been married 30, 40, 50 years, um, the beauty with that. Instead, when the, the going gets difficult, then it's easy to... Um, decide that you want more girls' nights or or whatever.
0: Mm, uh, You you also, uh, Carrie, you talk about something called Burogamy, which Mm. is a new kind of chic term that uh, some of the the young are embracing, or single rather, Mm -hmm. a term coined by a sociologist. Mm -hmm. Um, Where did this Mm Burogamy idea arise, and what does it mean, for those who might not have heard of it?
2: Yeah, so Burogamy is really just this idea that a woman is married to the state or to the government. And um, it it Mm. came about because this is what we're seeing, especially among the poor in our culture. Marriage itself has actually become kind of a status symbol, like something to which women aspire. Mm -hmm. And not all women are going to be able to achieve that. And so a lot of these women just give up um, or, you know, they just find themselves pregnant and um, there's no husband or, or boyfriend around to raise the child. And, you know, parenting and motherhood put you in a very vulnerable position and so somebody's got to help out and that's what we're really seeing in the united states especially among the poor is this long-term relationship with the the government and, that, and that's um you know become the norm mm. much more so than the old-fashioned idea of, uh. of raising a family as a married couple
0: wow so the government as spouse mm-hmm. it's really yeah. frightening yeah um in in the book you'll you, you You highlight women who are abused and Mm -hmm. were abused, some of whom went on to become leaders in the feminist Mm -hmm. movement. You state the following, quote, among nearly every woman involved in feminist thought, Mm -hmm. from Wolfstonecraft uh, and the early suffrage movement to Simone de Beauvoir, Betty Friedan, Kate On and on. Gloria Steinem. The common thread is that all these women were broken, broken either by parental abuse, sexual trauma, drug use and abuse and mental illness. Some of these women experienced all of these wounds. Mm -hmm. Is feminism largely a reaction to those kinds Mm -hmm. of abuses that you mentioned there uh, Mm -hmm. to women throughout history?
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, this was one of the the shocking features I found of the movement was that from the very beginning, Hmm. you have all these women who are incredibly broken. And to a one, their reaction is not, well, maybe we should, you know, go back to something that is actually protecting women. Um, Instead, they they just are pushing more and more towards a liberalization of laws and mores and and scuttling the very things that actually have protected women in so many respects over, you know, throughout the centuries in healthy societies. Um, So that was an amazing Hmm. feature to find. Was just how much you know broken women who we know you know broken people break other people um, have have had all this control over public policy and yet these are the, not the kind of people that you would want um, you know anywhere near it.
0: Yeah, much has been made recently about men mm-hmm. uh, identifying as women and now participating in women's sports mm-hmm. as trans athletes. Uh, now we're hearing stories about sororities forced to accept mm-hmm. biological males what are your thoughts on this phenomenon? What are we seeing here? And why don't we hear more from women's groups and traditional feminists.
2: Yeah, no, I, you're not hearing more from, tra- from traditional feminists, because this is actually really part of the goal. From the 1970s onwards, they it made it very explicit that radical feminism really embraced this idea of gender fluidity and of getting rid of genders and whatnot, so this is now just the goal that they've been striving for, partially because we now have the technology to make some of these superficial changes. Um, but yeah, this is th- the end game, and so that's why so many women are silent about it, um, it's also why there's this infighting going on among feminists. Someone like J.K. Rowling, who is um, obviously fighting for you know maintaining women as biological women, um, versus the others who are a lot more outspoken about it and seem to have the louder voices. Um, but n- this this movement hasn't been built on truth, and so therefore it's just going to break down. There's going to be this infighting that happens when uh, it gets gets to mm-hmm. those final stages of of what it's been striving for from the beginning.
0: Oh, it's remarkable to watch, I Mm -hmm. have to say. Carrie, before we go, what do you want readers, both male Mm -hmm. and female, if I can still say that, (laughs) uh, what do you want them to take away from the end of woman? Uh, And where are you seeing hope?
2: Yeah. Um, You know, I think I've been amazed. Men love this book. Um, I don't bash men in this book. I think I give men a really great roadmap to understand What's happened to them and why they feel so silenced by women and this power struggle and you know all these issues that we're we're all struggling with um, so I think that that's you know what I would love men to take away I would love women to know you know just to start looking behind the curtain and seeing that we're being indoctrinated every day in so many different ways that the culture is against us and to really start looking into you know women that you respect and into literature and you know finding alternative ways to really understand what it means to be feminine than what the 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 narrative is. Um, but I, I'm, I think we can see hope in a lot of places like um, just certainly moms groups. You know, this is that Moms for Liberty and um, Moms for America. These are, are groups that are um, providing women a place to actually have their voice heard on, you know, a, a bigger scale. Um, but I think we have a lot of work to do on the mm. cultural level because this is really where they have, have schooled us so much is um, by having mm. movies and literature. You know, Barbie's a perfect example of it. And uh, we on the, the pro-life. And, and Catholic side just haven't pushed into that yet, and started giving our own message, which, frankly, is a lot more compelling and and beautiful.
0: Yeah, Carrie. As you were speaking, and as I read the book, I kept thinking, you know, when the culture discards something, mm-hmm. nature inevitably prevails, mm-hmm. and you're seeing this kind of movement to cooking and gardening and knitting and yeah. crafting, and it's become very chic to be mm-hmm. a, a homemaker, yeah. except without <laughs> men and without children. That's but all right. the other trappings are there, yeah. so it's, it's yeah. a very fascinating cultural phenomenon we're watching. Now yeah. we've got to complete the circle and, you know, bring the hu- husband and That's kids right. there. And it'll, That's it'll, what we're working I on think, now. It'll, I think, be more rich. <laughs>
2: That's right. Yeah. I think-
0: the End of Woman, How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us by Dr. Kerry Gress is available at bookstores everywhere and online from Regnery. Visit our website, Carriegress.com. Thank you, Carrie. Thank you. She is the anchor of Fox News Sunday, chief legal correspondent and host of Live in the Bream Podcast, as well as a best-selling author. Her new book, The Love Stories of the Bible Speak: Biblical Lessons on Romance, Friendship, and Faith, is in bookstores now. Please welcome back to the program my pal Shannon Bream. Hello. I'm delighted you're here. Now, we had a little conversation when you first launched the book, and I'm glad we can go a little deeper. This is your third book, Mm -hmm. Telling Stories of the Bible. The first two were concentrated on women of the Bible Mm -hmm. primarily. Why did you decide that love and love stories would be your focus?
3: So many of these earlier stories that we told they did have a love component to them. And some of them are really beautiful. You know, whether you look at the original design for Adam and Eve and man and woman and what God had said about them, sometimes I think it gets lost in the shuffle. People think, oh, the Bible's an old oppressive book and it doesn't really, it has outdated notions about marriage. But man, it's full of really good advice. And if you go back to what God actually said Mm. about marriage, it was a very positive thing. And men and women in partnership and Really being each other's best supporters and with the help of God's unconditional love to guide us in how we're supposed to love. Yeah.
0: I, I, I love the way you intro the book. I mean, this is really about God's love for us. That's mm-hmm. part of the romance that, and love that you're getting at here as well. In, in the intro, you write this. It's a quote from St. Paul. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is so difficult for many of us Mm -hmm. to do, but how do these stories help illustrate not only God's love for us, but how we're called to love one another? What what surprised you as you saw? Because sometimes when you frame things differently, Mm -hmm. suddenly parts of the Mm -hmm. story stand out that might not have before.
3: Yeah, over and over in the New Testament, Christ is asked about how do you sum up the law? And it always goes back to that about loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and spirit, but love your neighbor as yourself. And I checked, there are not any exceptions. Um, sometimes, the mo- sometimes we're the difficult person to love, but mm-hmm. often we have to deal with people like that in our lives. It could be a coworker. It could be a family member. It could be a neighbor. Whatever it is, God didn't say like, oh, you get a pass for them. He says, you have to love them the way you love yourself. And we're all born inherently selfish. I think we have mm-hmm. to fight against that. But think about how you want all the best things for yourself. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're called to be humble and to really look out for the good of other people.
0: Shannon, what popped out at me as I read this, first of all, your spirit is throughout the book, and I know your love of the scriptures. I know this is not just a curiosity for you. Mm-hmm. It's a part of your life. How did that inform the stories you decided to choose here? I mean, you, you're open with the Song of Solomon. Now, this is oh, one. Boy. We don't hear this one <laughs> from the pulpit too often, right. or if you hear it, it's a little Tiny bits and pieces. When you read, it forced me to go back and read the whole thing when I encountered this chapter. I mean, this is pretty hot stuff. But what does it say about the nature of married love?
3: well, that God is not surprised about our passion for each other or that we would have desire for each other. That's how he created us. Mm -hmm. And and I feel like he's endorsing it all throughout the Bible, but really by including this book, it's clear that he wants us to nurture the romance in our lives. And we look at these two people who are yearning to be together, but they want to do this the right way within marriage. And they're working to all those things. But I just love the language is Mm -hmm. so flowery about your teeth like goats and your arms like bands of gold. I mean, there's a reason this is included, and, and I always think, gosh, I've got to up my game on these lunchbox notes and that kind of stuff. It can't just be, have a great day, XO. Maybe <laughs> I go. should get some inspiration. Well,
0: and, and that runs to the heart of something that, you know, we were talking about the book before. Something I saw is the practical aspect of this book. Mm-hmm. It's not just a Bible study because some mm-hmm. people will say, oh, that's a nice thing. That's part of my meditative life. It also is a practical application. Mm -hmm. There are practical lessons that you kind of draw out of these stories that we can use in our own lives. Tell me about the Song of Solomon, particularly that that notion of being the prime support Mm -hmm. for the one you love.
3: Yeah, I don't want anyone else to be my husband's number one fan or number one cheerleader. We really make it a goal to be that for each other. But that means, too, you may feel funny sometimes, maybe with the more flowery language, but why not stop and appreciate them? Remember falling in love with them for the first time and tell them what you think is so great about them, I think that's one of the best ways to nurture a marriage. And like I said, I don't want anyone to ever have first place. I want my husband always to know that there's nobody else who has his back the way I do.
0: Mm. Now, now, there's another story that you probably don't want to go around mimicking, and that is Samson and Delilah. Oh, boy. Who, yeah, who figure here. Why include them? I mean, this <laughs> is the ultimate dysfunctional relationship. Yeah. Why did we need to know about Samson and Delilah? You know
3: Delilah? what? In all the books I've done, I include the flawed, messed up relationships and individuals because that's all of us. I mean, none of us are without sin. Christ is the only one in the Bible and our Heavenly Father. And so you think about that and think, okay, I want to make sure that people know, like, no no matter what's gone wrong in your life, whether it's circumstances that have come to you or you've made bad decisions, we mm. all do. It's okay. God can work through those. And even at the end of Samson's story, as much as he messed up, he called on God one last time and God was faithful. He was always there yeah. and came back to honor Samson when Samson humbled himself and asked for God's help.
0: Hmm. Yeah, no, that, that, the lead up to that though is, <laughs> yikes. <laughs> it was a mess. It's a mess to say mm-hmm. the least. Yeah. Uh, real hive housewives of Judea. <laughs> exactly. They were. In, in a recent op-ed you wrote, and you know, I at Fox News, you talk about the importance of friendship and the love between friends, uh, which you also include in the book. And you point out that recent studies show that men are suffering from a friendship recession. According to the Survey Center on American Life, the percentage of men with at least six close friends fell by half since 1990, from 55% to 27%. The study also found the percentage of men with any close friends jumped 3% or without any, jump from 3 percent to 15 percent, a five-fold increase. What did that tell you and why did you decide to include friends mm-hmm. as part of these love stories in the Bible.
3: I think we're created to be in community, and those numbers are so sad to me and yeah. really kind of shocking. And I talked to a number of pastors and priests about that number and about friendships and why we can't, aren't better th- about those in modern society. And they said, you know, we have not placed a value on them like we used to. And we used to be in our communities and know our neighbors and know people at the Elks Lodge or at the Boy right. Scout troop or in our churches. And we've, we've let some of our houses of worship go. People aren't gathering there in the same ways. So I thought, listen, Jonathan and David, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, people Mm. who stood together through very difficult circumstances. We all want those kinds of friends, but it means we have to be those kinds of friends.
0: Yeah. And I want to talk for a minute. You include the story of Job and Mm -hmm. his friends. Mm -hmm. Why that story? Now, now they came to to comfort him, Mm -hmm. really, after his life, you know, is turned upside down. Mm -hmm. What was the lesson there? And why include that particular story?
3: man, such difficult, horrible suffering that we're all going to suffer, but it's hard to imagine suffering as much as Job did. His friends initially got it right. They showed up for seven days. Nobody said anything. They sat there in sorrow together, which was a beautiful thing. And I think sometimes we worry about saying the wrong thing when somebody's Mm -hmm. grieving, but even just to show up, they'll remember your presence. And sometimes that's what we need more than anything. But they got off on a tangent when they tried to accuse him of harboring sin or doing something wrong. And God comes thundering back in defense of Job at the end saying, you've gotten it wrong. This is my Mm -hmm. faithful." And I'm here to defend him. So, as friends, sometimes we get it wrong. But if we're there and we're trying to sit in the grief together, that's at least the greatest gift that we can give to someone.
0: Mm. Talk, l- talk for a moment because it struck me. Um, and I, I look—I've always seen the parallels between Adam and Eve, and of course, you know, the Blessed Mother and, and Joseph, and, and Blessed Mother and Jesus. That that they become the new Adam, the new Eve. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about that. And. Why, because you you pit the two stories, if you will, against each other. And it enlightens them in a new way.
3: Yeah, so Adam and Eve were the beginning of humanity, and gosh, God had an ideal situation for them in their relationship, the physical environment, they had all of those things. And then there were so many tragedies, sin and other losses that came to them. But we see, you know, with Mary and with Joseph, they come together as the new birth, bringing the Messiah into the world. And it's a new opportunity. He's the new Adam. So, you know, Mm -hmm. he's gonna be the sacrifice that covers for all the mistakes that Adam made. That's one person who took us down the wrong path. But with Christ emerging. And coming, he's the one person that will then fully God, fully man, save us from our sins and the mistakes of the Garden of the Eden.
0: Yeah, and Esther is included mm-hmm. here as well, who you've talked about yes. before. Esther is obviously a big hero for Shannon. She Green. is. She, she's, she runs throughout all of these books, mm-hmm. really. Um, but here you talk about her, her particular, um, her friendship and uh i mean you have a woman who's essentially she's in a beauty competition right. you know to win her husband. on steroids yeah it's like you know the bachelorette biblical times um what's the lesson here i mean these are these are two women who are friends mm-hmm uh, sorry these are this this is Esther and and uh
3: Xerxes yes I mean the king who when it starts out he's this impetuous uh, not very nice guy no so he does have this crazy beauty pageant and Esther ends up catching his eye she has great honor he chooses her to be his new wife and we see him change so we know that he was smitten with her we don't know her side of the story if she also fell in love with him but we know that when she comes to him for help after God's divinely placed her where she was that he offers her anything up to the half of of his kingdom, which in those days would be unthinkable for a woman. So we see him really soften. And the, I, the lesson I took it, from it is that, listen, you may be in a marriage with a less than ideal spouse, the way it came together, maybe less than ideal, but God can still work f- through you when you're faithful to him. That's a witness to your spouse. And often their hearts soften through the process. Yeah.
0: I love the practicality that you draw mm-hmm. out of these stories because I think they were meant to, they weren't meant to be museum pieces. Right. They were meant to be poured into your own life and then lived anew. And you do that. Mm-hmm. Is there any chapter here that you almost didn't include? Mm.
3: You know what was really hard to narrow down for Paul? He had so many different friendships. And I thought, uh, oh my goodness, should these all be different chapters? So we not try to tackle Paul? He had so many special friendships along the way that we really had a hard time cutting that one down to what yeah. we did. But he's woven all throughout the New Testament and shows us how this community of believers, many of them under threat of martyrdom, and they yeah. suffered that, um, they bound together, and they're the early church. They're how it came together.
0: Tell me about the relationship that almost didn't make it into
3: yeah. this book. Hosea and Gomer is a really tricky one because the book of Hosea is super depressing. It was not <laughs> joyful. He was a prophet, and the people didn't want to hear from the prophets. Yeah. They had pulled away from God. They weren't listening to him. And God tells Hosea, you're going to go marry this woman of sort of ill repute. You're going to marry yeah. Gomer. She was not a faithful wife. They had a couple kids, and their names are crazy. You know, what the Lord told them to <laughs> name him, like, you are, I do not love you. You are not my people people um but Even though Gomer is unfaithful and runs away with other men and gives credit to her lovers for the gifts Mm -hmm. in her life, even though Hosea was the one providing and taking care for her, it's this picture of God trying to talk to Israel to say, I will always come after you and redeem you. So Hosea, it's a very harsh book, but Hosea's lesson is beautiful in that he goes and redeems Gomer. And he says, you're going to come home with me. I'm going to pay the price to get you out of these debts and slavery and whatever trouble you've gotten yourself Mm -hmm. into. I'm not just going to bring you home, though. We're going to love each other. This is going to be a real marriage. Mm -hmm. And I think God so often talks to us that. Way that you make mistakes, you run away, you chase other things. I'm always going to be coming after you to redeem you.
2: Mm.
0: No, it's a beautiful story. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's not a, not a sweet one, Mm -hmm. but it it ends well. So that's what we have Mm -hmm. to focus on. You dedicate the book to your husband, Sheldon, of Mm -hmm. 27 years. Yes. Um, Give me a sense of how the Bible and your faith have held you together. Now you've Mm -hmm. written about this in your first Mm -hmm. book. You wrote about the many trials both of you Mm -hmm. went through—physical, real hardships. Mm -hmm. And how your faith carried you through.
3: Yeah, you know when you make your vows before God and in the church and before your friends and family, um, he seals that together, I think, in a very special way. And we know... We say all the time, we are not perfect. Well, we're perfect for each other. We believe God put us together. And so we're going to have flaws. We're going to have fights. We're going to have unexpected tragedies. But when you have that to lean on, it makes me wonder how people do marriage without it or do life without it. And there are times we have to be humble. We pray together every night and read from the word together every night. And I think it's just a great bond for us to say, Even if we had a rough day or one of us was, you know, a little antsy and unkind to the other, we're always going to come back to that place where there's something greater that binds us together.
0: What are people telling you about this book? I know you've been you've done book Mm -hmm. signings. I know you've been doing a ton of media. Mm -hmm. What are they telling you about the differences? Because, look, Mm -hmm. there are a lot of meditative Mm -hmm. books There are a lot of biblical uh, studies out there. Why do you think this one has resonated? And boy, has it resonated. New York Times list over and over and over again.
3: Um, You know what I love is that I have so many couples telling me they're doing this book together. And that's not something I heard from the earlier books. They were more focused on women's Bible studies and those kinds of things. Although I've had men's groups tell me they've done them too. But this one I love that people are reading through together and Mm. hopefully strengthening their relationship and being inspired and renewed um, by what God tells us about our relationships and how beautiful they really can be.
0: Okay. What's next? Not, mm. I hope not like you know, great meals of the Bible <laughs> speak, or but that could be a good one. We
3: talked about manna. Yeah, manna.
0: You know, there are some
3: other good ones that we the could have fish. In there. Fish, Jesus
0: cooked the fish exactly. for the apostles. Exactly, feeding
3: 5,000. Fi- yeah, look, there are a lot of options. If you do group events, there are. I'm giving
0: um, you the next book. And okay, I love it. And this could have a culinary crossover Credit and a Fox Nation special. Although to Raymond,
3: although I can't, I can't cook, so I would be quickly exposed. <laughs> Sheldon could um, do the cooking. Sheldon is an you amazing cook. He's an amazing cook, <laughs> among, among all of his other great um, qualities. I am going to try a fiction book. That really? is um, definitely got a thread of faith through it. But it's one of those things that I woke up and it came to me and I felt like, OK, Lord, you've dropped this in my lap, helping me to stu- steward it. I've already told you I'm coming to you for pointers because I've not written fiction. You do it so beautifully. Yeah. And I'm going to pick your brain on how to do that. But um, I, I, there's a message there that I, I am happy
0: share. to help any And I'll bring my next Bible study to you. That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we will be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.